All right, this is Crow. Before we jump into the episode that we have today, uh, Clive DeCarl has come back. Uh, there was an overwhelming response to the products that he's providing, and uh, he's found that the supply chains, like everything else, have slowed down. So welcome, Clive. Thanks very much, Crow. Yes, I was incredibly surprised. We had way more orders than we'd ever anticipated, and literally hundreds and hundreds of emails asking questions and lots of people wanting to join the Secret Health Club, and we literally swamped and we've taken on a couple of extra staff to cope with everything but so anybody who has bought anything uh, please just be a little bit patient and then as crow indicated we suddenly found the supply chains are broken i mean to, to get bottles and labels and stuff which used to be no problem at all or the raw ingredients suddenly it's become a nightmare out there so thank you very much all of you uh, who are waiting for stuff just be patient and it will arrive as soon as we can possibly ship it Okay, so to cut to the chase here, Clive's on top of things. No ball has been dropped. This is about the nonsense we're all living with. Uh, There are workarounds and he's on it. We just wanted to inform everyone. Now we're going to jump into the episode. So there it is. Thanks, Clive. Cheers. man welcome to crow triple seven radio this is episode 221 jason lingren is with me and we have two gentlemen from australia with us daryl o'brien and darren dixon um we're going to be talking about the constitution uh you guys may remember a while back jason and i did a request for people who knew some things about the constitution and of all things we met some people in australia and we're going to explain how that shakes out and why it went this way anyhow welcome jason and I don't say this very often. Good evening, Crow. Yeah, we're doing this at night because there's something like 15 hours between where we are and where they are in Australia. Anyhow, we don't have a lot. I know your house flooded last night in the middle of the night, but um, you're going to be able to leave that house pretty quick. That's the idea anyway. We're working on all that now, trying to get that taken care of because uh, paperwork for the new house has been signed. So, All right, man, let's just get in here and do this. This is one I've been looking forward to. So let me intro these guys real quick. And uh, before I do, I preface, we're going to do some work on the Vatican, which is key and central for anyone who caught the Kissinger episode. Um, You shouldn't be in the dark about what role it plays. Problem is, is we have to do that an hour too. I'd say about 10 minutes after I put Kissinger up, it started getting flagged. So anyhow, welcome, Darren, and welcome, Daryl. Hey, good morning from Australia. Morning. All right, guys, let's kind of start at the basic beginning here so people understand why we're talking to two guys in Australia about the United States Constitution. I found out from speaking with you that the Australian Constitution was modeled 
on the American Constitution. So can we start there? Can we just jump in and give a quick outline? Yes, well, the American Constitution did form um, part of the Australian Constitution as well as the Constitution of the German Empire and the Constitution of Switzerland. Those three constitutions um, formed part of the Australian Constitution. We took the um, power that had been stemming from the people uh, and included that power, uh, which is mentioned in the Switzerland Constitution and the United States Constitution, into the Australian Constitution. Uh, because the supreme, absolute, uncontrollable authority must at all times stem from the people. So the Australian Constitution really brought that into being through two sections um, of our Constitution, section 123 and 128, where the parliaments require the people's <clears throat> permission to adjust the Constitution of the Commonwealth um, in Section 128. And if there's going to be any changes or limits to any particular state, then um, the people must give the Parliament the approval. So is the general idea that the uh, Founding Fathers of the United States kind of did a decent job with the Constitution? Yeah, they did, although predominantly at the beginning the United States Articles of Confederation were more or less to break away from the um, from England uh, and from Britain, um, but of course you guys have inherited the habeas corpus, which is one of the fundamental rights of the people to have a representation and voice in the courts, in the parliament, and essentially influencing the executive. So the US Constitution really expresses those rights and maintains that power that the people must have influencing their legislators, which has slipped away since the corporate structure really stepped in to take over. Let's address that for a second. I'm sorry for interrupting, but um, this is critical because a lot of people who have been listening to the work we've been doing um, have been saying things like the Constitution was written, it was insider baseball. The thing that matters is the Declaration. They've been saying all these things, but the truth of the matter is, is the Constitution was written before we had corporations gone wild in this country. Um, and it was also written, I mean, it's so far ago, people were st still saying thee and thou. Um, totally a different world than the corporate world. That's correct, right? That's correct. But the corporate world was hinted to in the Bill of Rights in England in 1689, 1688. And that the basic principles of what the corporate world really about was clearly reflected in that Bill of Rights and we're now clearly suffering under that when you read the Bill of Rights the English Bill of Rights you can see exactly what this corporate structure is doing to all over the world to all of us 
And we have to be aware of that. And therein lies the devil, which is hidden in that Bill of Rights. The whole structure of that Bill of Rights was to keep away any influence from the Holy See, the Roman Curia, um, into government um, for the purpose of um, stopping that um, control mechanism that the corporate structure relied on in order to suppress the people and suppress the people's influence in the legislator and in the courts. So, yeah, it's very powerful. When you read that Bill of Rights, you can better understand where we're really at today. And, of course, we had the influence of one of the earliest megacorporations, which was the East India Company, correct? Yes. And, of course, um, that's where Australia was essentially settled um, by the British through that um, East India or uh, East India Trading Company, which um, Captain Cook more or less was funded by to get um, to Australia and to settle it accordingly with the British flag. So let's just cut to the chase real quick. Like right now, in this moment in time, and by the way, I guess we should cover Australia too, because I think something's happened to your constitution. Here in the United States, the last president gave lip service to the constitution, said he'd uphold it and defend it to the best of his ability, whatever the hell that means. Um, but the point here is that if that document was strictly adhered to, um, a lot of the nonsense that's surrounding us, it'd fall away, wouldn't it? Absolutely. It's like Australia as well. Did something happen to your constitution, by the way? Did they finally take steps to try to bury it? They've been desperately trying to bury it uh, and the basic principles around it pretty much a couple of years after the Federation at 1900. So um, it's been poorly interpreted by um, our courts, poorly interpreted by legislators. They've tried to disassemble it by bringing in other statutes that contradict it. But one of the things that the Australian Constitution uh, and the framers intended was that because the Australian people take a, a vital role in the, the structure of that constitution, they've more or less kept it from the Australian people. Instead of installing it into our school system, which really should have been, and making sure that every child and everyone in this land understood what that constitution was about in order to take part in the referendums Um, because there's been 48 referendums since Federation uh, and there's only been six that have had a yes, which speaks volumes. The Australian people have just been ignorant of a document that they play a vital role in and this is why... Um, when I saw this 20 years ago, I thought, this is crazy. Um, so I started public meetings and just reading through this constitution and to see if there's any correlation between the constitution and what, what's happening today. And, of course, we saw this vast chasm take place and people were just shocked that 
what was written in there, which dictates what government can and cannot do and the, and the role that the people must play in that. What might uh, ring true uh, for your listeners also is, in Australia, I can explain the Australian situation. Since 1973, we've had a corporate government. And what's taken place, the actual government operate off a general acceptance of a truism. So what's happening is it appears that the political parties have usurped the role of the people in the constitution. So remove the people, insert the uh, political parties. Now, that hasn't happened on paper, but that's how it appears to be. And what's going on is a lot of the time they will have a referendum and ask the people for a particular change and the people will say no. And then when it's within two to four years, what's occurring is they go ahead and do what they asked for and were denied anyway. And what it appears to, to be is that, yeah, the political parties have all of a sudden, they have actually written themselves into the constitution and they're basically, since 1973, with um, what they did was they removed the crown of the United Kingdom and that they removed the power and authority. And since they've removed the power and authority, there has been no power and authority. So they're operating under this... Um, corporate banner. Well, corporate banner, yeah. It's, it's a, uh, a queen that's on paper and not an actual true sovereign being with any power and authority to delegate to the government. So I do believe there's a similar thing occurring in America where you have this corporate government that operate under the constitution as they call it here in Australia, from time to time. So the times they want to operate under the constitution, they are. Like, for example, in Australia, when they want to remove a particular politician, they engage the constitution and they remove that particular politician. But the rest of the time, they operate under their corporate uh, statutes that they've written that actually rise above the stream of the constitution itself. So you've got these these corporate statutes that have been written under the constitution, but they don't comply with the constitution. All laws in Australia must be subject to the constitution here, but we have these laws that are not subject to the constitution. And when you inquire with the government as to those um, indiscrepancies that these laws are not subject to the constitution, they turn their heads and they use the excuse, well, it is generally accepted that this is happening. So once again, they operate off the general acceptance of a truism that the political parties agree to and not the people themselves. Now that, <laughs> let, let, me, let me back up. So if I follow that correctly, basically they turn the, the, the queen into a straw man or a straw woman, right? That's what you're pointing out there? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, she actually has no power here that she can actually administer. And the power has been completely usurped by the Australian government because in 1973, the Labor government actually removed the power of the United Kingdom crown and they created this new Queen of Australia that was not operating under the power and authority of the United Kingdom Crown. So what's happening is, is 
once again, they want us to generally accept this truism that they have some sort of power that's outside of the crown. Now, the power and authority in the constitution, there is but one power, and that is the crown of the United Kingdom. So they haven't actually created a new power and authority to replace that. They just run off their general acceptance. Well, that, that's kind of the story of everyone here where I live, right? We're all lost at sea. That implies we're all dead, and yet everyone sitting here listening to this is living and breathing. So it's a similar thing. It's a world of fiction where people are pretending that things that have no existence do. But let me back up one more time here. If I followed the initial part of this conversation, the idea at hand was the Constitution was drafted honestly to protect living men and women from the Holy See. Is that correct? Did I get that right? Essentially, yes. The Australian Constitution was drafted to, first and foremost, bring about laws for the society of people. And we set up a structure a structure of government, um, which the people had ultimate control over through the Constitution. And all laws that stem from the Constitution was subject to that Constitution. And the check and balance, of course, was always the people. And it relied heavily on the people's knowledge of that constitution in order to maintain the parliament's ability to draft statutes um, stemming from that constitution. And, of course, um, this has slowly been whittled away. And here we are today in a bit of a mess. What they're trying to actually hide is, is that originally prior to the constitution being um, enacted at Federation, there were six colonies and the six colonies joined as one sovereign independent um, federation under the crown of the United Kingdom, an indissoluble federation. And what happened in 1973 was they dissolved that uh, federation under the crown. And that's the problem. They never asked the people by referendum which they need to, needed to. And we have a clause in our constitution. Um, it's clause two. And it says that um, the queen in the constitution is the queen within the sovereignty of the United Kingdom and no other. And if you go to the, uh, the schedule where the oath is to that queen, it says that only the name of the Queen of the United Kingdom can be changed from time to time. So, in other words, each monarch's name from the United Kingdom can be changed. But there is no provision for this Queen of Australia, an alternate queen under an alternate power. So, what they've done, as we were stating before, there's been a couple of uh, pieces of legislation that they've enacted. One's called the Australia Act and one's called the Royal Styles and Titles Act. And these two acts actually rise above the Constitution and uh, essentially yielding the power and authority, which is just a corporate authority, once again, that's a general acceptance by the political parties. So you have this, you have this um, de facto government going on where they're hoping... It's like McDonald's, okay? I'll put, put it to you like this. When I, when I grew up, McDonald's was, was actually, you know, it was a pretty good hamburger. But now 
they've they've actually taken everything out of that hamburger and replaced it with things that aren't actually food. And that's the same thing with government. They've replaced it and what they're relying on is that you think it's the old system or the old hamburger, so to speak. So it's like many products that have happened these days. But, yeah, the, the, the Constitution itself is has been usurped by this corporate entity that yields no actual power and authority and they just hope for this general acceptance that you haven't noticed that they've actually changed it by these corporate statutes. It's that deception going on once again. Yeah, and in 1999 here in Australia, we had the last referendum that we've had um, out of those 48 referendums and that was fairly well in your face. Do we go to a republic or do we stay with the monarchy? And overwhelmingly, the Australian people said, we'll stay with the monarchy, which pretty much undid all of their dirty work that they'd been conducting for the last hundred years. And they ignored it. It was interesting with that referendum because uh, what actually happened was the question was, do you want to replace the Queen and the Governor General in the Constitution with a president? And the people said no. And that actually contradicted their Australia Act and their Royal Styles and Titles Act, which replaced that Queen that was in the Constitution. So in effect, not that it actually did, in effect, it nullified and confirmed that the people wanted to remain under the power and authority that's found in the Constitution and not this generally accepted truism of this corporate entity. Well, then I've got to ask the obvious question here. Um, I'm guessing you're not the only two guys in Australia who have a clue. People must have tried to take this to court or take what I'll call a meaningful measure uh, to push back. And has that been done? And if so, what was the outcome? I mean, are your courts stacked or what's going on there? Yeah, our courts are stacked. And one of the things they did in 1973, they first signed a treaty with um, Rome. Then they um, created the paper queen. And then they created a separate court system. Hold on, I got to I got to jump in here with what you just said. Basically, if I understood what you just said, uh, the Vatican took over your country. Basically, yeah, and that was the first step. So, in March, nineteen seventy-three, our Attorney General, the Federal Attorney General, signed the Unidroid Treaty, which then allowed an intergovernmental committee based in Rome to oversee and draft all legislation um, under the heading of private law. Wait a minute, you're, you're telling me that all the statutes and laws under this kind of perverse corporate system that's called government, that's all being done in Rome? Yeah, and there's 63 um, member nations of which the top 25 form the executive arm of that body of, of which Australia is um, on that executive arm. They draft all the private law. Now, Australia joined in 1973. America was already part of that in 1964. Um, England went over to it, you know, the United Kingdom in 1948. 
So this private law body have been drafting pretty much all of the legislation um, ever since. And that legislation, and you can, I mean, this is all, you can confirm all of this by getting onto the um, uh, Unidroit website, which is where I learned all of this. Are you saying that the United States is in the same situation? Did you did you just offer a date? When did the United States become part of the system you're describing? Uh, they become part of it in uh, 1964 and the United Kingdom in 1948, and they target specifically your legislative department. So here in Australia, it was our Attorney General. Uh, in the United Kingdom, it was the Department of Legislation and International Law, and I'm pretty sure it's the same with the United States. And from that point on, the architects to your legislation then um, take their instructions from this governing council based in Rome. And they have the articles for each one of those. So, for instance, laws around contracts, laws around negotiable instruments, banking, secured transactions, franchising, insurance, any civil procedure, civil liabilities, leasing, um, transportation, hotels, municipal law, marriage, even the legal status of women and maintenance obligations. And recently, they've drafted articles relating to space. <laughs> so they're now governing <laughs> space. Yeah, sure, sure, sure they are. We can imagine a queen of Australia. Let's just imagine that. Um, so, so I got to ask, man, they had to have had their foot jammed in the door. How did they do it? I'm guessing these countries didn't necessarily want to do what, what was brought to bear. I guess what I'm asking is how the hell did they pull this off? They must've had some kind of leverage. Um, if, if, if we're to go back to the beginning of this conversation, we're stating that the constitution was drafted to basically protect living men and women from the Holy See. yet we're very early in this conversation and we're pointing <laughs> out that almost every country that matters is being governed by the not so Holy See. So how the hell did they do it? It's been around for uh, this influence since, I know for the United Kingdom, since 1215. Mm. The Treaty of Verona, 1213, um, gathered the, the Holy See gathered up uh, the United Kingdom through King John and took the crown and leased it back to the United Kingdom, which they pay every year diligently. I think it's a thousand guineas a year are paid. So they've been in the background insidiously in, in the back corner of all of our governments influencing them for hundreds of years. How, how did they do it, though? I mean, back then there was no video, so no one was getting blackmailed for playing hooky with a goat. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm just trying to get down to the You know, we know how things are done in the modern era. You know, there's a lot of that kind of thing goes on, but 
all the way back then, do you have any insight into what the crowbar was? What was the the lever, the the pressure? Probably religion. Yeah. More than anything. Mm-hmm. In in nineteen forty six, what actually happened was they introduced the League of Nations, and UniJoint was an arm of the uh, the League of Nations, which was obviously a free yeah. run of the United Nations, so the One World Government. So now that's as we know that's been going on for you know a long time, you know hundreds if not thousands of years. But um, yeah, it all began or the the, the last um, I suppose realm of it you know, bestowed upon every country started when uh, after World War One with the League of Nations. And it just, as I said, it was an arm of the League of Nations. And so people, once they joined the League of Nations, they've actually signed onto it by entering the League of Nations. So it sort of came along as a um, an ancillary part of uh, being a member. The first attempt in the 20th century here in Australia was through um, the first beginning of the League of Nations through the Treaty of Versailles, uh, which didn't really get up, didn't get legs, because the the sort of pseudo-leader was our Prime Minister here in Australia, Billy Hughes, and he was a bit of a redneck, uh, and he didn't, he didn't really like the Chinese or the Japanese being part of this League of Nations, and they were very much wanting to be part of that. And because he wouldn't include them in that that role of that body, um, it sort of broke up, and um, then it was reformed again in the forties. So uh, you know, it's just been a gradual in the twentieth century, at least. It's been a gradual takeover. But um, through a number of areas, but the world wars were essentially the catalysts to bring about all of this influence through Rome, just through the back door. And of course, the banking world <laughs> has been um, one of the main um, uh, thrusts of, of power that um, Rome has been influencing, especially through the Jesuit arm. And uh, the neutral Switzerland were really the first to start UniDroid off. Uh, I think it was around 1940, and uh, then gradually they they just and and UniDroid was specifically set up to do be the drafter of legislation, be the push for this private law, and it's the private law that we've really got to focus on, and therein lies the devil separate to that of the public law, which is applicable to the society. Private law tends to find its foundation in the land or on the sea as such. But um, you know, here in Australia, the, the legislation that really shows that up is relating specifically to, uh, as, for instance, Australia and its territories rather than the people. And, of course, all of this stems back um, in English law through the Sestacuvae Acts, which the first of which was under King Henry VIII, and then in 1666 under William and Mary of Orange, and 1707, Queen, of, Queen Anne, 
There's been a few others since, but the SESTA QVAs bring in the uh, dead entities, the true straw man entities, which we've been all pretty much labelled with. So it's been a you know a gradual takeover um, over many hundreds of years. Well, lost at sea philosophy. Yeah, the lost at sea philosophy. Yeah, it's it was, it's so laughable, you know, to it that is. we're even having this conversation. Before we go any further with that, though, there's stuff that gets called patriot mythology. Are we blatantly saying at this point that there is legitimacy to all of this straw man identity information? Maybe not every single detail of it, but we are confident saying that that is correct. Is that true? Yeah, they, they just gave you the date. <laughs> I'm just trying to make it plain and clear because a lot of people like to argue about this stuff. And this is about as important as you can get, not to mention the fact that people will accuse, especially us, of not pointing out that the fact that the Vatican and the Jesuits are at the heart of most of this. And we never disagree with that statement. Yeah, uh, these, uh, these are, this is legislation. It's written in law. We we just work off what the law tells us, and it's black and white. It has been there insidiously in the background for hundreds of years, and you only have to look at the legislation to see how they killed us all off at birth, and they've created this capitus demonitio maxima, capitus demonitio minima, and capitus Demonitio Media, these three levels of corporate identity. And you see that today in the um, way that the name is laid down on paper. So that's the combination of uppercase and lowercase. Um, and Capitus Demonitio Maxima is the, uh, the ultimate Roman slave which is the all capitals um, name. And it's all there. It's in Black's Law Dictionary is another great source for that. As I'm logically putting all this together, I'm starting like Jason and I have covered uh, the last time anyone declared war. You know, the United States likes to go bully people around and have a lot of wars. Last time they declared war was pre-64. Now I'm beginning to put one and one together. Um, is that because the corporation can't declare war? You know, we we got to start thinking in these ways, don't we? Yeah, in fact, they use the military codes. Of, um, the Labor Code is probably their, one of their foremost military codes that uh, they use in order to take over um, governments. They move in by stealth. There's actual articles in your Labor Code, 1863, that allow them to conduct this war in the background and take over countries in the background. Oh, come on, Daryl. It's not a war. It's a peacekeeping uh, exercise. <laughs> yeah, it's right. not a war. It's, war. it's good for the elephants, though, right? As long as it's good for the <laughs> elephants. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sad but true, you know. And Finish we your take that on board or we just push it aside and say, no, hang on, we're the de jure people and this is the separation there is a, a, a phrase that i've been promoting for years and it's it's de jure solemn et naturel which in english is 
you are answerable to the Creator, separate from the Holy See. So, de jure solemn et naturel. Where are you drawing this idea from? Oh, it's uh, Latin. Is it codified somewhere? That's what I'm getting at. I recognize uh, the Latin, yes, but it's- it is codified. Um, unfortunately, when you do the sort of Google search, um, you've really got to dig deep to find the true meaning um, uh, because uh, the Holy See doesn't like being separated from <laughs> as such. But it is there. It took a many um, searches for me many years ago to find that phrase, but I did find it. Yeah, good luck finding it now. Many years ago, uh, search engines work much differently. But Jason, while we've still got some time left, why don't you lead us in? Because, um, you know, anyone who wants to argue about the straw man, I'm not going to bother. I haven't been bothering. Uh, It's not really an arguable point to me, but you just heard the date from two other guys who were uh, living in a country facing some semblance of what we are. So why don't you address the idea of the upgraded constitution, because a lot of people have a lot to say about this all the time. Yep, that they do. So let's just take a look at the dates here. So the constitution for the United States was signed on September 17th, 1787, wasn't actually ratified until June 21st, 1788. Before that, the United States, even though they won the Revolutionary War, was acting under the Articles of Confederation, which of course are a bit different, although similar principles to be sure. From there, we had, oh, what, maybe about 100 years under that before what exactly started happening? Because it seems that around the year 1871, we had a changeover to a more corporate structure with the actual entirety of what the United States is. So before they reply, let's just be clear. We had this constitution that came along in the beginning, and the supposition here is is that it was updated or changed or some people even say swapped. Yeah, well, it seems that the preamble to the U.S. Constitution that I'm aware of was um, on the 29th of March, 1867. It allowed the people to form that perfect union and establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility and provide for common defence and promote general welfare. So... You had it, um, and this is what's actually written into the Australian annotation to our constitution. So the annotation being what our framers presented to the general public 10 years leading up to our federation, and this is what they've reported into um, the, that annotation relating to the, Australia, the United States Constitution, citing the Declaration of uh, Independence, the Articles of Confederation. And they've got the down as the um, 29th of March, 1867. So what are you pointing out about the preamble? That the preamble was changed, or I didn't quite catch that. What were you pointing out about the preamble? Well, that preamble is what's existing in our constitution as such, in the history of our constitution. So that's reported in our annotation is the 29th of March, 1867 preamble. So um, 
is that does that comp- uh, marry up to what you guys are aware of? Or? Well, I'll tell you what. As you said it, I was in my head. I was completing your sentences, but I'm no constitutional expert, and like most Americans. Uh, I was duped in my younger years, so without Schoolhouse Rock, I probably wouldn't have even remembered the preamble, although lately I have been reading it, but I see what you're getting at. So you have written into record date, time-stamped, all that good stuff on that preamble, which could be compared. So the truth of it is, I think, unless Jason can answer otherwise, we would have to look verbatim to know whether there's been any modification, but I'll cut to the chase. Is it your contention? Are you aware that in whatever Jason says, in 1871, Jason? Yes, that's what the whole Washington, D.C. Act and all that. So do you have any information that would start to validate that the original Constitution was either reworded, swapped out, modified in some way in 1871 to provide for this kind of reign of the living dead, the corporation? It's actually the Articles of Confederation that were ratified on 18, sorry, 1781. July, 9th of July. Uh, you better jump in here, Jason, because I'm getting... Ninth of July, 1778, and ratified 1781. Yeah. I was looking at the Constitution, not the Articles of Confederation, so go ahead and carry on. My bad. You see, we've got Articles of Confederation, whereas it hath pleased the great governor of the world... And who's that supposed to be? That's a good question. And now, <laughs> 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 the creator. The creator. To incline the hearts of the legislators we respectively represent in Congress to approve of and to authorize us to ratify the said Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. Know ye that we, the undersigned delegates, by virtue of the power and authority to us given for that purpose, do by these presence in the name and in behalf of our representative constituents, so they're talking on behalf of the people, fully and entirely ratify and confirm each and every of the said Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union and all and singular the matters and things therein contained. And that's the 9th of July, 1778, ratified 1781. And that's um, your Articles of Confederation that we are, that's printed into our annotation of our Constitution. So I guess the main thing we're getting at is, do you have information or ideas about where we left behind the idea of living men and women and had documents or rights or whatever you want to say uh, changed in some way to open the door to corporate nonsense? Well... That would have to um, have brought in the Sester Q vase, which is specifically in your Black's Law Dictionaries, um, your first Black's Law Dictionary, um, right through to the 10th edition, clearly point out those, those connections and that corporate connection through the dead entity. Um, even though your Declaration of American Independence dissolved, ought to be dissolved, the any link with Great Britain, the word ought doesn't sever completely the ties to Great Britain, and therein lies the link through the Sesta Cuvée. Yeah, what they create is basically a mirror image corporate um, structure, 
And as you're aware, the corporate structure cannot deal with the living man. So they replace the we, the people in the constitution with the representatives, which uh, comes in the corporate form of the political parties. So that's the structure that they operate off. Well, that's the whole basis of corporate law anyway, isn't it? It's just representation of things that are real, of actual corporeal living entities by paper, basically. Yeah, that's right. And that allows them the power to then manipulate that paper according to their will, not the people's will. What's the big deal about the SESTA-QVA Act? Of, a lot of people bring up 1666 because, of course, they want to say, look, Mark of the Beast, um, do you know why, why that matters? Well, that's where they essentially killed us off at birth, and they do that via the live birth record. They give our parents when we're born, uh, they give them a piece of paper to fill out, and... They then take that live birth record and flip it over to a birth certificate and do with that as they please. They copy claim the name, so they register the copy claim on that name and all derivatives of that name, and then they just take that and use that um, accordingly and then enslave us uh, when it comes time to go out and work and step out of the school structure and uh, start mingling in society. So they trap us into that um, birth certificate and we then have been indentured into their corporate world. And accordingly, we then apply, we, we work under their statutes, those corporate statutes. But, of course, because all of this has been done by stealth, the it's a, a game of deception and it's up to us to wake up to that house and of cards man that's right we have to wake up and once we do wake up there are articles article 43 of the labor code which allow us to step into the role of being a free man and then we can step away from that corporate structure. But, of course, we also need to maintain the person that they've created in order to survive in this society. And that's where I've tried this, I've tested this in our courts quite successfully three times. Um, I've fulfilled the trilogy uh, and I played the role of the person's personal representative, which is the dead entity in probate. So our courts are probate, essentially, uh, and the most powerful court is probates because probate deals with the dead. So I presented myself three times in our courts as the person's personal representative, and um, they couldn't deal with me. They eventually... Uh, the it got to the district court here in Melbourne, in Australia, and the Department of Public Prosecution's representative just came up to me and said, listen, mate, this has got nothing more to do with you. See you later. Have a lovely day. And they were then dealing with any um, sort of breaches of their statutes themselves because they essentially 
created that entity. So they, uh, I basically handed that baby back to them, and they had to deal with it accordingly. And what was the outcome? Oh, they just leave me alone. <laughs> they just leave me well, alone. Hell, couldn't you find them or something? No, I'm making a bad joke. So let, let me let me spell this out for folks, <laughs> um, because so many people take in. And, and the, the word, the act that's being referred to from 1666, it's a Latin word, and here's how you spell it. C-E-S-T-U-I, new word, Q-U-E, new word, V-I-E. And then it'll be the act of, of 1666. But listen to the first line of this. This is the House of Cards, the charade. And this is really, of all the things that have gone on, the thing that astounds me the most is what a damn house of cards this is, man. It, it just, no matter what angle you look at it, the first good breeze that comes along, that thing's going down. But listen to the first line of this. An act for redress of inconveniences by want of proof of deceased persons beyond the seas or absenting themselves upon whose lives estates do depend. This is the whole lost at sea narrative. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so if you're if you're listening to my voice right now and you were born in the place we call Earth, I would like to inform you that you're not alive. You're lost at sea. You may think you're breathing, but actually you're not breathing. I mean, we, we could make these jokes all day, couldn't we? We could. Yeah. What they actually did at that time when they wrote the act is people were going off to sea. Okay. And a lot of people were getting lost at sea. And so they said we had to bring in this act for those people that were lost at sea because they left behind their estate. And if they left behind their estate, what would happen if they never returned from sea? What the act did was allow the government to claim that estate after seven years. So, but what they actually, in, in actual fact, did was they killed everyone off on paper and then collected everyone's estates after seven years. So basically, I, I mean, if I'm, I'm trying my best to follow this thread, so you get a birth certificate the day you're born. Uh, by the time you're age seven, it's a done deal. Is that what? Is that uh, part of what you're pointing not, out? Not completely, no. You have a chance of redress at any time, and this is where the military codes come in um, because essentially we've been at war for this whole time. Uh, and we're still at war, and you know you're in a war zone because um, there's a zip code or a postcode, as we have here in Australia, and the monies that's distributed out of the banks is um, not money, it's a promise to pay. It's a military script. So we're just all in a war zone, and as such, the articles of the Labor Code apply and you've got that that exit you can break away from all of that uh, and and take up the role of a free man and the um perpetrators have to leave you alone they have to honor the fact that you've woken up and allow you free passage we really just have to rather than turn around and attack our oppressors we just have to forgive them and move on. Too many people want to turn around and attack them and take what they believe is theirs, and that's not correct. It's been the property of the our oppressor 
um, since the life birth record was handed up by our parents. So you know, far too many people think that it belongs to them. It doesn't. It's, <laughs> it doesn't. We just have to lick our wounds and move on. Well, I would point out if, you know, every culture that I've ever studied, there's an idea of right matters. There's an idea of karma. There's an idea of the Akashic record. I'm guessing if you create a big enough bag of manure, you're probably going to end up paying for it at some point in your life. But that does bring us to the top of the hour. What we're going to do here is we're going to take a five-minute break, gentlemen, and we're going to come back. We'll be in hour two. The great thing about hour two is the air is much more breathable in hour two because we could say anything we want. There was all these important ideas we had to step around. And it's a bit ironic considering some of these ideas that we're laying down are among the most important ideas that could be shared with another human mind. Jason, last shot. You want to get anything into hour one of 221? Let's talk about in hour two what's being done currently around the world and how that might or might not be trampling on rights. And that's definitely something we wouldn't be able to cover for hour one without feeling the cold black hand of censorship around our throat. Oh, the irony of living in a world where entertainment has carried the day. When I was old enough to be paying attention, I was listening to the King Biscuit Flower Hour, who informed me that the Pope smokes dope and he likes to smoke his grass at the evening mass. And that was the entirety of what I knew about the Pope, when in fact, there was oh so much more to know. But anyhow, that does bring the first hour of episode 221 to a close. We're going to be back in spades, in clubs, in hearts, in diamonds. We're taking the whole damn deck back to hour two for crow777radio.com. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Uh, we're going to exercise some free speech on the other side of this, and we're going to talk about things that are frankly mind-blowing. And by the way, uh, part of the reason we're doing this is because we need to back up what we said on certain shows. But the other part is Jason's brought up a couple of things that people like to argue about, and they're really not arguable. Anyhow, join us on the other side for hour two of episode 221. And we're basically going to tell you that the Vatican owns it all and has for quite some time. There it is, man. Cheers. <laughs> 